Now, during our study of Mark's gospel, uh, one thing we haven't thought about a lot are the original readers of the gospel of Mark. I think the reason for this is because they're fairly easy for us to forget. They're not mentioned anywhere in the narrative, and the story is all about Jesus. Uh, when we read the epistles of the New Testament, for example, it's really hard for us to forget the original recipients. You know, Mark wrote Romans to the Romans. He wrote Titus to Titus, First and Second Timothy to Timothy. And it becomes clear within five minutes of reading the Old Testament prophets that there is an original context and audience. Hosea wrote during a time of apostasy. Malachi wrote to a people uh, in need of revival. And Isaiah wrote to everybody, multiple situations, multiple historical environments. And understanding the background of these writings help us get their meaning for our lives today. But the Gospels, which are filled with the mesmerizing life and teachings of Christ, might not immediately thrust their original audience upon us, but they definitely have them. You know, Mark had a Jewish audience in mind. Luke wrote to general humanity steeped in Greek thought. And John helped correct false thinking about Jesus. And Mark seems to have had a Roman reader in mind. These were apparently persecuted people who needed encouragement and truth from the life of Jesus. And today's passage that we're going to look at would have served that persecuted and laboring church well. Reading of the Jewish authorities' rejection of Jesus, reading of Peter's denial of Jesus, reading of Pilate's decision about Jesus would have encouraged and focused Mark's audience. So what we're going to do as we move through these movements or passages today is highlight the lessons that the original readers should have gleaned and that we should glean as well. And so here's the first one. Number one, God must open eyes. God must open eyes. Let's read the first movement together, starting in verse 53. It says, and they led Jesus to the high priest. Remember, they arrested him in our last episode in the Garden of Gethsemane. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he, Jesus, verse 61, remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? 
You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. All right, that's our first movement, our first episode. Now, like I said earlier, in our last study, remember, Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there, every disciple fled from him. They all abandoned Jesus that night. Even Mark might have been there. And he fled as well. Jesus was left with only his captors. And here, what we just read, is what they did with Jesus that night. Uh, They took Jesus in the middle of the night to the high priest. Now, when you patch together all the different gospel accounts, it's clear that their first move was to take Jesus to the original high priest or the retired high priest, a man named Annas, for a private interview before they then took Jesus to the acting high priest, a man named Caiaphas, who also interviewed Jesus privately before then having a public trial with all of the members of of the religious elite or the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was comprised of 71 elders in Israel and they governed Israel under Rome's supervision. So when they gathered on this night, they gathered as the judicial body over Israel. And everything about this trial, its location, its timing in the middle of the night, its speed, not even waiting one day to render judgment, All of that was against their very own laws that they had written. But they'd already decided that Jesus must die. So now they would put him on trial in an attempt to stick the death penalty onto him. Now, as we read, once the trial began, their quest for testimony against Jesus, it proved difficult. You know, there were a lot of ex-lepers, a lot of ex-sick, ex-disabled, ex-outcast, even ex-dead people who would have loved to testify about Jesus that night. Instead, these men looked for false witnesses, but as we read, they couldn't even find false witnesses who agreed with each other. But there was one line of testimony that caught Mark's attention. It's found in verse 58. Some stood up and bore false witness against Jesus, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that's made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. Now, this was a big deal to them because the temple was a big deal to them. It symbolized the essence of the hope of Judaism, but it also served as the center of the Sanhedrin. These men making these judgments, it served at the center of their power. Without a temple, they'd have no real authority. Now, Jesus never said that he'd destroy the temple. He had privately prophesied that the temple would, in short order, be destroyed. And he'd also predicted that his own bodily temple would be destroyed and that he would raise it up in three days. But he'd never said that he would personally go in and destroy Jerusalem's literal temple. But even this charge gain no traction as, verse 59, their testimony did not agree. But finally, after all of this grandstanding, the high priest could stand it no longer, and he tried to put Jesus in the block, in the dock for himself, to testify of himself or for himself. Now, at first, Jesus was silent, it says in verse 61. He made no answer. 
But then the high priest asked the right question. He said, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? In verse 61. What he's asking is, are you the Messiah? Are you the deliverer for whom we've all waited? Are you God's son? Do you think you're the divine son of God? God living among us. Now, the fascinating thing is that up to this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has adopted a policy of silence. You know, he forced demons to be silent because they knew him. He sternly charged a leper that he'd healed to keep quiet about it. He shrouded his teaching with parables. He sent a demoniac that he delivered away from Israel, allowing only distant lands to know what Christ had done. He even told Jairus not to tell anyone that he'd raised his 12-year-old daughter back to life. And even after the disciples in Caesarea Philippi had confessed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, he told them at that time to tell no one about him. But now, with this question from the high priest lingering in the air, Jesus unleashed the truth of his identity. In verse 62, he said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. All along, Mark has portrayed Jesus as the Son of God. He began his gospel calling Jesus the Son of God. Now, though, when Jesus is asked if he's God's son, Jesus finally himself says, I am. And more than that, he's the son of man who is seated, will be seated at the right hand of power, taking words from Psalm 110 and Daniel chapter 7 and applying them to himself. These passages referred to a figure who would one day come in the clouds of God's glory and judge the earth. Jesus standing there, the ultimate judge of all flesh, is being judged by these religious leaders. He should be judging them. And Jesus, with his words, assures them that one day he most certainly will. Now, this was all too much for the religious leaders. They thought that they heard blasphemy with these words. That's why the high priest tore his garments. That's what, what they were supposed to do anytime they heard blasphemy. And quickly, they condemn Jesus, verse 64, as deserving of death. And these otherwise dignified religious men began to spit on Jesus before covering his face, striking him, and mockingly telling him to prophesy about who hit him. Now, there's a lot in this passage that I want to highlight, but I'm just going to focus on what Mark's original readers might have noticed. For them, the gospel was still a raw and new message. For them, human civilization would never be the same, but their European roots had not yet been influenced by Jesus. They were just getting started telling the world about Christ. And as they traveled from place to place, to Jew and Gentile alike, they rejoiced because they knew they had the singular message that could cure mankind of all of its ills, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what they might have been shocked to find is resistance, sometimes of the vehement variety 
And as they read this passage, they might have recognized the kind of resistance that they themselves experienced in preaching the gospel. These men tearing their garments, throwing dust in the air, beating Jesus. Even though these Jews had the Old Testament promises about Jesus, though they knew that the son of David would come and deliver them, they were hardened against the message of Christ. They would not believe. This would have helped those early readers know that God must open people's eyes. You see, the leaders in that room on that night, they were blind. They were just blind. A veil was over their hearts. Like Pharaoh, whose heart was so hard that he thrust himself into the suicidal waters of the Red Sea, this religious court would not budge from their positions. They were blind, hardened against Christ. And the New Testament confirms this level of blindness. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 4, spoke of the God of this world and how he has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. He also said in Ephesians 2, verse 2, that every believer used to follow the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. John communicated a similar truth in 1 John 5, verse 19, when he said, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, as I'm prone to mention, these verses do not mean that good things cannot come from broken humanity. You know, we should expect glorious things like third wave coffee. Oh, so good. Black licorice. You feel me? Or Pixar. Oh, I love Pixar. We should expect these kind of great things to bubble up from people that God created in his image, whether believers or not. But when it comes to submission to Christ's gospel, God must open our eyes. And he can. Just like he opened the eyes of Paul before he became the great apostle. He was a persecutor of the church and God opened his eyes. The, religi the religious leaders back then were living a charade. They, charade, they acted like they wanted justice. They acted like they wanted to find the truth. But all they wanted was to kill Jesus. They didn't really want to know the truth, but God was able to open their eyes. And some of them, by the way, eventually did. They turned, repented, and submitted to God. There were even ex-Pharisees in the early church years. But with this point, I think an application for us is that we've got to be a praying people. It's not all that we must do in reaching out to those without Jesus. We have to be reasonable. We have to be loving. We've got to give good explanations for the hope that's inside of us. We must be exemplary and not spoil our witness by being punks. But none of it will be effective without God's help. So we've got to pray. We've got to gather together and ask God to open eyes. You know, as an example of this, many of you are parents. You've got to gather with your spouse or other believers and intercede for your children. Ask God together that God would take your child's heart by storm, open their eyes, and bring them into his kingdom. 
And it's never too late to pray that way. And this is how we can pray for anyone that we know who's outside of Christ. Write down their names, bring them before God, ask for opportunities, and then take them when God gives them to you. And know that it does not depend on you, but on God. He must open their eyes. All right, but in our second movement today, the point I want to draw out is this, that God can help us be faithful. That God can help us be faithful. Let's read verse 66 to the end of chapter 14. It says, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl, verse 69, saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them, but he again denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. All right, this second story of three that we're looking at today takes us back to Peter. We interacted with him in last week's text, if you remember. Jesus had shown Peter a prophecy from Zechariah that indicated that Peter would deny Jesus that very night. Peter didn't like it, and he told Jesus that he would never deny him, even if it meant he had to die. But Jesus told him he would deny him three times before the rooster crowed twice. And this episode shows us the fulfillment of that prediction. First, Peter denied that he knew Jesus when a servant girl accused him of being on Jesus' team. Second, Peter again denied that he knew Jesus when that same girl told bystanders that Peter was one of the disciples. And third, when those bystanders said Peter had to have been a Jesus follower because he was clearly Galilean, Peter put a curse on himself if he was a follower of Jesus. He swore that he did not know Christ. He said, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And when the rooster then crowed for the second time, Peter remembered in verse 72 what Jesus had said. Now another gospel, Luke's gospel, tells us that at that point when the rooster crowed, Jesus looked from the high priest's home out into the courtyard at Peter. Peter, he couldn't take it. And he broke down and wept. Now of course on this night, Peter did something shameful. Something he never thought himself capable of. Of doing. Like many of us on this night, Peter came face to face with his own failure and limitations. But what made Peter act that way on that night? There were a lot of factors, a lot of temptations, but at its core, Peter's sin was connected to the worship of security. On that night, with danger looming, 
it was unsafe for Peter to confess his allegiance to Jesus, so he denied knowing him. This is the same temptation that we experience today. We know that standing with Jesus will get us the ire of many, and sometimes we fear the lack of security and safety that might come from being on Team Jesus. Some have even gone so far as to rewrite or downplay the Bible Jesus endorsed in an attempt to become more acceptable to the onlooking crowd. But the original readers, they would have seen in Peter a story of redemption. He was, after all, the source material of Mark's gospel. He'd become a force in the early church. He boldly preached to crowds, he wrote holy scripture, and he more than likely died a martyr's death. And many in the church that Mark wrote for were struggling through similar persecution and pressured to deny Christ. Because of this, the early church would have read in Mark's account an encouragement that God can help us be faithful just as he helped this faithless man become a faithful man in the years after this event. And we can learn the same. God can help us live faithfully for Christ. Now this fiasco in Peter's life, you probably know this, came in three sets of three. First, three times in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter did not pray. Second, Peter denied Jesus three times. And finally, after the resurrection on a beach in Galilee, John tells us that Jesus asked Peter three times if he loved him. Peter told him he did, and each time Jesus told Peter to take care of God's flock. It was a threefold way for Jesus to restore Peter, the man who had denied him three times. This is the way of Christ. He makes a way for his fallen and broken people to return to him. He worked hard to re restore Peter. He even directed the angel at the empty tomb to tell the women to tell Peter to meet him in Galilee after his resurrection. He singled out Peter for restoration. And I love this. He worked so hard to bring Peter back into the fold. There's a story from the life of King David in the Old Testament that illustrates this concept beautifully. David, at one point, was forced to banish his son Absalom from the kingdom. Absalom had defended his sister's honor by killing one of their half-brothers and afterward fled to a distant country because, after all, he'd slain one of the princes of Israel. But after a while, David longed to bring Absalom back into the country. Still, though, the principle of the whole thing kept him from reaching out to his ostracized son. But Joab, David's general, he saw the whole thing unfolding and he knew David's heart. So what Joab did is he hired an older woman to pretend to need David's judgment. In those days, the king acted like a judge. She presented to David a false, though he didn't know it, family catastrophe. One where her son was banished from the land and the family didn't want to bring him back. Would David help her bring her son back home? In her argument, she delivered a final 
punchline to David that convinced his heart. She said this. She said, God will not take away life. And he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. <laughs> that is Jesus. That's who he is. He doesn't want the banished one, Peter, to remain an outcast or the banished one, you, to remain an outcast. He did this for Peter and he wants to do this for every one of his children who fails him. And don't forget, a major part of Peter's restoration was the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, after Jesus rose from the dead, he breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And when he ascended to heaven, he poured out the Holy Spirit. And Peter was changed by the Spirit's presence. Now he was humble, but with the power of God in his body. And he was able to stand for Jesus for the rest of his life. He did not deny Jesus like this for the rest of his days. And perhaps Peter's testimony can resonate with you today. Do you need the restoration of Christ? I want you to know that Jesus, he wants to bring you back. Perhaps you've got to repent of something. Perhaps you've got to confess something. Perhaps you've got to get real about the failure. Perhaps you've got to mourn, but you've got to let him draw you home. Or perhaps for you, it's the power of the Spirit that you need. Maybe like the church reading the Gospel of Mark for the first time, you're worried that you might not stand for Jesus in times of peril. But the Spirit can help you. Our energy alone cannot produce the righteousness of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And Jesus wants to bring you home. As it says in Matthew 12, verse 20 about Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. That's Jesus. He's not, he doesn't want to break or snuff out the weak believer who is struggling. But instead, he wants to restore you and empower you. Turn to him every day for his fresh mercies and grace because God can help you be faithful. All right, in closing, we have one last section. And in this final section, we learn that God's plans will succeed. God's plans will succeed. Let's read on in the story. And as soon as it was morning, verse 1 of chapter 15, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the... In insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. 
But the chief priests, verse 11, stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now, in this final movement in our teaching today, the religious leaders early on Friday morning attempted to pawn Jesus off on Pilate. You see, Rome didn't allow the Jews to execute people. So the Sanhedrin, these Jewish authorities, they needed to bring a charge against Jesus to Pilate. So early that day, they delivered Jesus over to this Roman prefect. Now, Pilate really would not have interfered with religious debates amongst the people of Israel, nor would he have even cared about their religious debates. So they knew that they couldn't tell him that they thought that he should die for claiming to be the Messiah, son of God. So what they told Pilate instead was that Jesus was making political noise by claiming to be the king of the Jews. Now, when Pilate asked Jesus about this charge, Jesus said in verse two, you have said so. Now, Mark's getting straight to the point with the way that he retells the story. John gives us some elaboration and tells us that Jesus told Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world. Okay, it was then that the religious leaders brought more charges against Jesus in verse 3, but he the whole time was silent, and Pilate was amazed at his silence. And it's clear from this whole passage that Pilate thought Jesus should go free. You know, the other Gospels present Pilate and even Pilate's wife as tortured about this whole event. So he tried to concoct a way of escape for Jesus by means of a tradition. Each year, he was accustomed to pleasing the local population by releasing a political pr prisoner of their choosing. It was, it was tough living under Rome's thumb, and this was a peace offering meant to garner favor for Rome's presence. Now, Pilate thought that they could offer, that he could offer them Jesus. He thought for sure that they would accept and say, yes, let Jesus go free. But the crowd, stirred up by the religious leaders, cried out for a man named Barabbas. Now, the Gospels tell us here and in other places that he was an insurrectionist who fought against Rome but was also a murderer and a robber, a thief, perhaps a political thief, stealing from the rich to give to the poor, something like that. Now, Pilate, sensing Jesus's innocence, he thought that the crowd would side with him, but they wouldn't side with Pilate's choice and instead opted for the choice of the religious leaders. You, you could even make the case that the people were choosing the religious leaders over Pilate when they chose Barabbas over Jesus. But don't miss this now. Barabbas, this guy lived the gospel, the innocent dying in place of the guilty. He, him set free, Jesus taking his place. So Pilate then asked the crowd, as we read, 
what he should do with Jesus. They cried out all the more, crucify him, crucify him. And in one of the saddest statements in all of history, it says in verse 15 that Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, delivered Jesus to be crucified. But his crucifixion only happened after he was scourged, which is a brutal flogging that many people did not survive. All this happened just like Jesus predicted. I think this is what the original readers might have fixated on. Jesus said that a friend would betray him and a friend betrayed him. Jesus said the disciples would desert him and the disciples deserted him. Jesus said he'd be delivered into the hands of men and he was delivered into the hands of men. He said he'd be condemned by the chief priests, scribes, and elders, and he was. He said Peter would deny him three times, and he did. He said the Gentiles would put him to death. They'd be involved also, and they did. All Jesus said would happen, happened. You see, God's plans, as I said, will succeed. This is the final thing I want to say about this text. The early church suffocating under the hand of persecution and hardship, living in fear of their own little Pontius Pilots all throughout the empire, would have loved seeing God's sovereign plans unfold in this passage. They had to come to pass. They could not be stopped. God's plans will succeed. You see, even though troubling times will come, God is in control. I think the early church read these accounts and expected suffering and hostility would eventually come their way as well. How could they, how could we, adherents and followers of Christ, expect to avoid pain and suffering? Our king suffered and so will we. Like Paul said in 2 Corinthians, or excuse me, 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But through it all, Jesus, he remained confident and quiet. He was oppressed and afflicted, Isaiah 53 says, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You see, Jesus did not buckle. He did not panic. And though the religious leaders lost their minds and Pilate lost control, Jesus lost neither. As the religious leaders lost their composure, Jesus remained calm. As they lashed out at him, he refrained from revenge. As they condemned him, he died for them. And though Pilate lost control of the situation, Jesus was in control of the situation. Though Pilate sought a way out of all of this, Jesus rushed into all of this. And though Pilate made his decision because he feared the crowd, Jesus feared no man and would die for the crowd. The religious leaders in Pilate, they struggled and panicked and accused, all in an attempt to keep their power. Ultimately, they lost everything. The temple and the Sanhedrin's authority were destroyed, and the Roman Empire is but a memory. But Jesus laid down his authority without struggle, without panic, without accusation. 
And in the process, he became the all-powerful one who instituted a new humanity. All who believe in him, who died and rose again, will live forever with him because God's plans will succeed. God bless you, church. Have a wonderful week and continue to trust in the God of all flesh.